Well, good morning and welcome from Bali for this episode 136 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm Hugh Rimmington, the Hack, and with me, the Professor PVO, Salamat Puggy. G'day. Puggy Pa. G'day, Hugh. So you're, you're, you're over in Bali, which, unless my maths is wrong, puts you on the same time difference with the East Coast uh, that I was used to when residing in WA, uh, particularly during Daylight Savings. I think you're three hours behind. That's right. That makes it early for you over there, but uh, I don't know, you've probably been getting a taste of what I remember getting when I lived in Perth, which is friends on the East Coast with insensitive attitudes towards time. You'd have to always make sure your phone was on silent, otherwise you'd get a a 4am call from someone who felt like having a chat at 7am when they were busily getting their coffee. I feel your pain. I've lived in Perth. <laughs> that sense of the insensitivities of the East, of those of the East. A broader problem that West Australians know well. It is scored deep into the psyche. So uh, hello to everyone there in WA. Look, the G20 is wrapped up in a few hours. As I talk to you, the PM flies on to the next summit meeting, which is APEC in Bangkok. But I think the great achievements will be the ones that he's got out of this G20 summit and also the one that preceded it, the combination East Asian and ASEAN Summit, an acronym feast in <laughs> Cambodia, where uh, he had a, a lengthy meeting with Joe Biden. So he has kicked every conceivable goal here, that meeting with Xi Jinping, which has been at that level not seen since 2016, and then a whole bunch of other meetings that he's had with important people from Narendra Modi, a very, very warm exchange as they started into that. The same with Emmanuel Macron. We're a long way from, I don't think I know the Australian Prime Minister is a liar, down to this business of, of great warmth, Rishi Sunak. And, and everywhere that he went, it's interesting because you've known Anthony Albanese well for many years. I've known him fairly well for many years. One of the things that is striking about him just as a personality is that he's a nice bloke, mm. low level, nice bloke, quite funny in a, not a kind of a thigh slapping way, but he's got a good sense of humor. And in these face-to-face -face meetings, that's a great strength. And we've seen that come through. So I don't know how it's been playing. You know, you get a bit lost in the weeds when you go to these summit meetings. It all becomes very important. I don't know how that has been playing as you've seen it. Well, no, I think it's been playing well. I mean, I, I agree. Watching it from home, it certainly looks like a success. The only two caveats that I would put on that, which are not to diminish the success of it, by the way, but they're just sort of, I think, interesting contextual points. The second of which I want to get your opinion on. The first is just that it's going on in what we know is a difficult economic climate at home. And even though some of his meetings, like with the Chinese president, will hopefully be the first step to leading to some improved trade relations where that trade relationship has been hampered recently. So there, there is an economic benefit to it, not just a sort of security benefit to the thawing that comes with it. But there is that reality, I guess, for context that for a lot of Australians, for most Australians, I would argue, as successful as it has been for Anthony Albanese, they're probably not paying that much attention. They're worried about domestic issues, which we'll only really know how he's going when we get the next budget out of the way and then when we you know, fast forward another 12 or 18 months as we count down to the next election to you. But the second point I'm particularly interested in your view on, yes, I think it's a clear success for him. And I think it's profoundly wrong to just describe it like a lot of cynics of diplomacy do and multilateralism do as just a talk fest, because particularly that engagement with the Chinese president uh, was not guaranteed. And as you mentioned, you know, the relationship with Macron is an obvious contrast to Scott Morrison. But Peter Dutton has been fairly critical, and the Liberals more broadly have been more overtly critical of meeting with the Chinese president, you know, sort of this idea of kowtowing 
Whereas commentators, uh, I saw Peter Harcher as an example of this, but others have done the same. They've actually made the exact opposite point, which is that if there was any kowtowing going on, it was actually in a sense uh, the Chinese president, if you can believe that, as a superpower representative rather than Australia by having the meeting with the thawing that occurred. I'm interested what you think about that attempted political play by the coalition. I don't want to overstate it in relation to Peter Dutton, but it was there. But I'm not overstating it to talk about what more lowly members of his team have had to say out and about on the hustings over here. You know, trying to sort of almost use it as a here we go, Labor aren't tough on China. So be afraid, everyone, be very afraid. What do you make of that? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. One of the things that uh, Xi Jinping said to Albanese was that he appreciated his mature approach. Now, plainly, you can see that as being a reflection on the previous approach, which he deemed to be not mature. But Albanese, when that was put to him, said, well, I try to be mature in my meetings with all leaders. And part of that is not using for domestic politics foreign engagements. So in a sense, it could be argued that what we're seeing there is a fairly standard sort of domestic politics hit on Albanese for meeting with Xi Jinping. Now, nobody, and Peter Dutton's plenty smart enough to know, would see a meeting with the Chinese president as being anything other than a, you know, an important diplomatic moment, particularly seeing it came with no preconditions. So there's no kowtowing involved. And to take your point that is the leader of the superpower, in fact, doing the, the kowtowing, I would never use that phrase. It's deeply insulting in the Chinese context. But what we've seen here is something that is really, really significant. And that is a genuine warmth and desire by China to re-engage with the West. We read it through the prism of Albanese and the meeting that he had with Albanese, using phrases like the relationship with Australia needs to be cherished, that sort of stuff. But also, of course, globally, the fact that he had an over three-hour meeting with Joe Biden, they went through a lot of things. Mm. And also the, the desire, there are so many tiny little optical things that go with this. So all Chinese, Xi Jinping more than most, are deeply, deeply aware of the language of body language and the language of face. And we've seen from China a kind of a blank face, a stern, you know, kind of, if, if a face can have a cold shoulder, then that's what we've had from China for some time, a kind of a slightly aggressive blank, you're causing all the problems in our relationship. There's no warmth in this relationship. It's the opposite. And yet there were genuine smiles when he met up with Albanese. He's not a free smiler. He's not a free man with a smile, Xi Jinping. And so what I think we've seen there, to take to your point about is China making an adjustment, essentially, it really is. Why is it doing it? Now, the argument, I would say, is it comes down to two things. One is that they've had a good look at how it's gone for Russia in essentially saying, to hell with the world, this is what I'm doing. And it hasn't worked for Russia. It hasn't worked for anyone. So you've seen a shift away from that, from China. And perhaps the other thing that's going on is that China has used this bellicose language now for some years. What's happened? What's happened is there's been a breakdown between China's relationship with the West, and not just that. We've also seen a rearming by the United States, by Australia. Defense posturing, military posturing has changed. The diplomatic posturing around things like the Quad, in which Australia, the United States, Japan, and India have come together into this new arrangement, and that is plainly to counterbalance China. So China can look out and say, look, all this talking tough we've been doing and to hell with the West and to hell with all of you, all it's done is it's united people against us 
militarily as much as anything else. So it could well be that, that they have just simply made a calculation that it's time to wind that back and not make enemies we don't absolutely need to make enemies. So it's good for the world, it's good for Albanese, and the notion that we've kowtowed up to China, I think, has no merit at all. Yeah, and there's, there's nothing that you've said there that, that I disagree with. I find it interesting for where we go next in the domestic political debate here that, you know, that the coalition have been prepared to be, I guess, as bullish as they have been uh, in trying to reflect badly on Labor and Anthony Albanese for his relations with China. Because I do know that when you talk to them, coalition MPs really have, a lot of them really have this view that this is the big thing that's on the horizon as far as threats to Australia go China. And interestingly, I mean, a lot of people would agree with that who don't therefore agree that, you know, that it's a bad thing to meet with them and to try to reduce those tensions. But a lot in the coalition seem to then have an ipso facto attitude that if that's the big security threat, we need to be out in front of it, almost risking and in actual terms, making it worse, but in somehow protecting ourselves in the process. And they're trying to paint the nature of what might come next with China as a zero-sum game between Australia's relationship with the US and Australia's relationship with China. Now, that is, in my view, that is preposterous. I'm a very strong critic of China, let me just say. I mean, the simple fact that they're a non-democracy, just, you know, to put it colloquially, just gives me the shits, right? Like, I don't like the idea that whether we like it or not, the world's emerging singular superpower in time, because I think that's where it goes, is likely to be, at that point in time, a non-democracy. That scares the hell out of me, to be honest. Whatever you think about the nature of China and its philosophy, its psychology, its expansionist or non-expansionist tendencies, I'm a Democrat. So the fact that it's not likely to be a democracy concerns me. The fact that India is not likely to be big enough by then to act as an arbitrage in time as a democracy concerns me, not to mention the fact that its democratic tentacles are, you know, sort of withering a little as we watch it. So my point about that is to say that I'm no sort of, if you like, sycophant of China and Australia's relationship with China. And I'm not suggesting Paul Keating is, but I'm not in the Keating school of thought necessarily. But to call it a zero-sum game, to have it as this sort of simplistic binary choice, US versus China, just belies the reality of where we're at now much less where we want to be at in the future, much less the opportunity, Hugh, that's there for us to try to play a middle power role of reducing rather than increasing tensions. And you don't want to overstate one meeting at a G20 in Bali, but it, it feels to me like us going down the right path rather than the wrong path. Look, I think that's true. I think the test will be in the months ahead, say in six months' time, mm. have those trade sanctions against our barley and our seafood, our timber and all the rest of it, have they come off? That would be one thing to look for. And has there been any shift in the bellicosity around the South China Sea or is it back on again around Taiwan? Those are things that we'll pick up on. And Hugh, we'll get to this much later, I know, but let's flag this in conjunction with what we're talking about vis-a-vis -vis China. Boy, you know, the next US presidential election, what Trump does or doesn't do, we're going to get to that later. But, you know, it's not just interesting within the context of America, is it? It's interesting in the discussion we've just had. Yes, that's, that's huge. Very quickly, I'll run through some points of what has struck me out of this. One is that Anthony Albanese has invited Narendra Modi to address the Australian Parliament next year. That is a big deal. Not only will Modi be here for the Quad Summit 
meeting, but also Albanese says he's going to go twice next year to India, including for the G20 over there, but also for a separate meeting. He's also invited Macron to come to Australia. So those are relationships that he is looking hard to bring together with a strong defense. There's cultural issues, there's trade issues. For one thing, on the trade issue with Macron, he's Australia is very keen to tie up an, uh, a European free trade agreement in the coming months. That needs the ratification of every European nation. So that was part of the trade talks. But the other thing, let's make no bones about it, is about those defense and security alliances. So he hasn't said, what is the deal with France now that we're no longer buying their subs? But the, the, the clear hint there is that we're going to be doing something with France in some form. And France is going to be dealt back into as an Indian Ocean power. And as a Pacific Ocean power, France is going to be very much dealt back into our security arrangements and the security arrangements with India are perceived as being vitally important going forward. And the other thing is Ukraine, because the issue in common for everyone is that their economies are being knocked around by the war in Ukraine. And so, you know, on every level, the first level above all is the humanitarian level, the international law level, but it goes down through the economy, inflation, all the rest of that kind of stuff, food security. The best thing that could happen to the world would be for Russia to withdraw its troops from Ukraine and that war to end. And so that's why there was a, a steep focus on Ukraine by all the leaders, China going quiet on it, Russia, of course, turning up, getting a lecture and then running off in a half. But everyone else is completely unanimously of the view that Ukraine, the war there has to stop on every single level. So it was important that that got uh, got put into place. And that's basically the, um, the ultimate upshot of that. I did try to draw him, we'll get on to Trump later on, but I did say, you know, try to draw him on whether, you know, we've seen Biden come out. Biden is an old style diplomat, longtime chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, has traveled the world in his pre-presidential life. He believes in multilateralism. He turned up at the COP in Egypt to talk about climate change. He turned up at the ASEAN summit. He turned up here. He's not going to APEC because his daughter, I think, is getting married. But we saw real American engagement, and then Trump comes up and makes an annou his announcement. And if he was ever to come back, God forbid, to the U.S. presidency, he'd be blowing up those alliances all over the place and and creating all kinds of havoc. So uh, you know that's another thing to look at. Uh, I couldn't draw elbow on that. He just said, "Joe Biden is the president of the United States. I look forward to working with him." <laughs> yes. No. I, I put it this way: I, I don't think anyone anytime soon is going to refer to Donald Trump. When we do talk about him running for president again, which he's now announced, whether he's successful or not, he's running in the Republican primaries. And he, I would have thought he's a halfway decent shot there, but we'll get to that. But I don't think we're going to get anyone do what they did last time. I remember Josh Frydenberg, I think it was on Sky News, as a then junior minister or relatively junior minister, describing Donald Trump as a dropkick and freely doing so not thinking that he might be treasurer at the same time and deputy leader of the Liberal Party at the same time that Donald Trump was president. This time, I think we're going to see a much more cautious response around the traps. And in fact, our colleague Stella Todorovic was at the National Press Club, Hugh, just the other day when Tony Burke, the IR minister, was speaking. It was actually during Burke's speech, all about the IR laws that we'll probably talk about shortly as well, that it was announced formally what we kind of knew would happen, which was that Donald Trump would run and after receiving a whole series of, you know, let's face it, in the IR space, you know, somewhat turgid Q&A around the complicated issues attached to workplace relations, Stella just got up and just said, oh, you know, this has just happened. Tony Burke, you know, what do you think of that? 
and you know the audience laughed and and he did exactly what you would expect he avoided answering the question yeah too true everyone says dropkick privately now and probably stronger language but um <laughs> let's take a quick break back with you in just a second pvo This is The Professor and the Hack, episode 136. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, PVO is here, and I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminson. You mentioned uh, Tony Burke and IR. That's back in the Senate, isn't it? It is. So it's passed the House of Representatives. We knew it would. Labor's got a majority, so it would be a pathway to a very short parliamentary career for anyone within the Labor Party to vote against its own industrial relations laws and take away its majority in the lower house. Uh, and there were handfuls of crossbenchers that were supportive of it anyway. So it's passed the House, as it was always expected to. It's now to be debated in the Senate. There's most of the negotiations, Hugh, as you well know, go on behind the scenes rather than on the floor of the chamber. So the government is working feverishly to try to win over the support of David Pocock, in particular, possibly Jackie Lambie in replacement of him, but she looks less likely than David Pocock to come on board. The Greens are on board, which is why they only need one more crossbencher to get it through the Senate, so they don't need to worry about the opposition screaming blue murder when it comes to these laws or any of the other concerns amongst any other crossbenchers. So what happens? Well, the view within the government is that they'll get David Pocock. What they have to give up to get him is what we'll wait to see. And then the timing of it all. They want this passed by Christmas. They're very adamant about that, the government. So assuming that there are amendments in the Senate, which it's hard to see they're not being, it then has to go back before the House, obviously, just as a procedural matter before it passes so that the House can affirm those amendments made by the Senate. But that would be a fait accompli, because if it passed the Senate, it would do so not only with crossbench support, but obviously with the Labor Party acquiescing to these amendments and therefore knowing that Labor's majority would carry a confirmation of those amendments once it went back to the House. So this is all going to play out both next week when the Senate's back, of course, in the last sitting week where it passed the House, the Senate were in estimates. But the Senate sits as well as the House next week. And then the week after is slated to be the last parliamentary sitting week of the year. Now, sometimes when business continues, they can push it over at least to the Friday, perhaps, particularly the Senate, but also maybe into the week after that. But then we can all have a break from what's been a sort of a, a pretty busy year in 2022 in politics. Absolutely. One of the things that the IR bill is supposed to do is to push up wages. The latest signs are that they are coming off the floor a little bit. Yeah, they have. I mean, uh, th this was, you know, the, the, the latest wages data showed that there's a 1% increase in the September quarter, which was higher than expected. That annualised at 3.1%. Now, normally a wage increase of 3.1% for the year or 1% for the quarter, you'd be sort of running around saying, this is brilliant. You know, the the, the suppression of wages in this country that has long been a feature of our system uh, looks to be at an end and, and people would be you know, somewhat, I mean, employers might be concerned about it, but, but employees would be relatively happy about it. It's still a decline in real wages though, and that's because inflation is well above that 2 to 3% band that the RBA likes to keep it within. So had it been kept within that band, then a 3.1% annualised increase in real wages would be, oh sorry, in wages would be a real wage increase just. But because inflation is well and truly more than double that, comfortably so, people are suffering a decline in real wages across the board on average. And it's just that it's a little less than was perhaps predicted to be the case for 2022. So that's, I suppose, silver lining in a rather continuous dark cloud. 
And of course, there are people who are vulnerable to the whole business. Not only, as you say, it's not a real wage increase, and that seems to be some distance off. Pensions go up, are indexed to inflation, so there is some protection there for people on those. But for people on, you know, retiree fixed incomes, not attached to the pensions, you know, they're not all wealthy by any means. And and families trying to struggle on through it remains a case that uh, those kitchen table discussions with the high interest rates going with it are going to run for months and months. Absolutely. And, you know, while there is a sort of prevailing wisdom or there had been a prevailing wisdom that the Reserve Bank would pause with its interest rate increases just to see what effect they had over the summer months, the higher than expected inflation number that came in to end the year could put pay to that. So we'll have to wait and see on that front. But the other factor, of course, is that, you know, it's, it's a catch-22 for people. You want wages to go up because cost of living is becoming more expensive. However, if wages do go up disproportionately, and I'm not suggesting that's the case just yet, but if they do, if they chase inflation, then you can have a spiral between wages and prices and you can have a real you know, sort of 1970s phenomena that follows. Now, we're a long way off that, but at the very least, you can say that higher wage increases does risk more enduring higher inflation. It can slow down the pathway to bringing it back under control. We'll wait and see whether that happens. The, the counterweight to that, of course, is that you can crash the economy. And that's what the US is actually looking to almost make its public policy objective to cause a recession to slow down inflation. Australia doesn't want to do that. We want to slow inflation, but we're prepared to do it a little bit more incrementally so that we don't crash the economy. Well, let's look to that US example then. If the risk is of a crashed economy in the United States, and we go back to the questions of Trump or the presidential election, it's still two years away, but the uh, the conditions for it are really being established now. They'll go into the, the primary season, you know, just over 12 months away, and then it becomes just the mad race to the line. And we're still left with a US president who, although he's had successes at these summit meetings, is perceived, and Donald Trump got easy laughs out of it, as being the kind of guy who falls asleep in any room. There was a tiny moment when there was an intake of breath at the G20. All the leaders went out to plant some mangrove seedlings, believe it or not. This was uh, in the baking heat. <laughs> I don't think too many of them were too grateful for this as a picture opportunity. This was part of a mangrove alliance around climate change and, and resilience, et cetera. And at the end of that, doubtless to their great relief, they were taken up a flight of stairs to this kind of like a cabana arrangement to have a drink and just mingle and, and get a breather. And uh, sure enough, just climbing up those concrete steps to be greeted by uh, Joko Widodo, the Indonesian prime minister, Biden trips on the steps. There was a moment where everyone in the room watching it on the big screens goes, <gasps> yep. <laughs> he steadies himself on Rododo and life goes on. But we're going to see a lot more of this, the sense of the frailty of the president at a time where recessionary, perhaps deep recessions are hitting in the United States. Trump is stamping around. It's a nervous time, I would say, in the US. Yeah, look, it's going to be absolutely fascinating. You know, Trump announcing his involvement in the Republican primaries, what does that mean? I, I still think he's big fish in a Republican primary. I think he's hard to slay in a Republican primary, even for the, for the Florida governor, who wouldn't, I'm not, I'm not predicting this, but it wouldn't even surprise me if he decided DeSantos not to even run because he, you know, in mid-40s, he doesn't need to go through the angst of taking on Donald Trump when he sees himself as having percentages of Trump in him, but with some better elements to go with it. So we'll, we'll wait and see. But either way, 
you know, you'd have to think Trump, if he's not the favourite, he's near to the favourite to win a Republican primary because you get rid of all those centrist voters and obviously you get rid of all the Democrat voters as well, by and large, with the Republican primary system. And for the most part, it's not proportional. It's winner takes all and that also favours Trump if it's a larger Republican field. That may or may not be the case, depending on whether Republicans get behind an alternative to Trump. They didn't last time. It doesn't mean much to me that people are writing Trump off including editorials from places like the Wall Street Journal, because he's been written off before. I do think that his chances of winning a general are low. But of course, that depends, as we've talked about, on what happens on the Democrat side, You know, whether Joe Biden has the capacity to beat him a second time when he has, a, has to defend his record rather than attack Trump's record in a, in a post or essentially a post-pandemic environment, in a worsening economic climate, for example. Trump played on a lot of that with the speech that he delivered when he was announcing his run. Things that aren't surprising, but he, you know, he had a crack at China. He had a crack at the fact that had it not been for the pandemic, things were humming along beautifully in the economy. And he was on, on a consensus pathway to victory almost was the way that he was putting it. And then, of course, he proceeded to blame both explicitly and implicitly Biden for the economic woes that the US is now facing, whether that's fair or not. So what does it mean? Well, you know, Trump will be divisive. Politics will heat up. What the Democrats do or do not do in response to the Republicans will in many respects, I think, come down to whether Trump wins or loses, but they'll be having to make those decisions concurrently with the Republican primary, which, which means that they don't get that sort of battle advantage of, of waiting to see what happens with Trump first. Uh, it will be messy, it will be fascinating, and it will be high stakes. And I think one of the things, again, you, you, you say that, that, that Trump is not battling into a vacuum. He's got to fight for the Republican ticket. And then, you know, if he wins, he goes through and obviously goes against the Democrats in which you have this. I think, I think he does look frail, Joe Biden. But the other element to it is the economic circumstances, which I haven't bottomed, bottomed out, I don't think, in the US by a long shot. And in Catherine Firkin, the 10 reporters, report from Mar-a-Lago as the announcement was made. She had a grab from uh, someone reacting to it, classic sort of white American voter saying, you vote for the guy who brings you money. And the perception that there was some sort of golden economic age during the four years of uh, the Trump presidency. And I wonder whether that sensation will deepen if the US goes into, into a recession, a deep recession, that people just simply go, look, I'm poor, I'm struggling. I need to change. Here's this guy promising me the world. What have I got to lose? Which is, of course, Trump's secret slogan back in 2016. What have you got to lose? And that could work for him again. Yep, I think I think it, it could well work for him again. And, you know, I mean, look, there's every chance that Trump can win a primary and then win a general, depending on the, the state of both the economy and the state of the Democrats, whether it's Biden or someone else. I think it's more likely that he can win a primary and lose a general just because of you know the divisive nature of him and the fact that he can carry more votes in a primary as well as with the voting process than he can in a general. But nothing, nothing's out of the question here. And that's one of the things that's going to make it so interesting to watch. Because on, on the Republican side, Trump could easily crash and burn. He could easily win the nomination. And then he could easily crash or burn or win the presidency in a general. You know, like literally, they're all on the table. And the Democrats really could, if they knew those outcomes in advance, strategically put themselves in a brilliant position to take on whatever the Republicans turned up for the general. They don't know that, of course. Well, it's one of the profound mysteries of the United States is the, is the liberal movement, as they call it, the democratic movement, mm. is, is a massive, 
movement, a storied political structure within the United States. And if you look around for a Biden successor, you just don't see one. You know, people look almost automatically towards the vice president, Kamala Harris. We've discussed her in the past. I don't think she can cut it. Yeah. But there's so little else around of a figure. You've got certainly you've got people in the Democratic Party who are strong in various constituencies, but you just don't see anyone there who can bind together the very, you know, the disparate parts of, if you like, centre-left politics in the United States and make it sellable, I don't But it's, it's interesting though, isn't it, Hugh? Because in a sense, and I've got to put a bit of nuance on this, but in a sense, you also can't find the equivalent on the Republican side. It's just that we've accepted that Republicans don't try to net together alliances across the aisle these days, they've sort of become either Trump or Trump acolytes in one form or another. You know, there's a, a sort of an extremism to the Republican Party that, that perhaps wasn't there in, in years gone by when the, the establishment Republicans had greater control. So in a sense, this is a bipartisan problem, but it feels like a bigger problem on the Democrat side. I, I completely concur. The reason being that it can't, it can't seem to find anyone who can reach into what you call the heartland of America or the mainstream voters outside of those big coastal communities of New York and California and so forth. And that, you know, that, that, that doesn't necessarily stop them winning some of the time, right? But it can prevent them winning in the longer term if they don't solve this problem because those sections of American communities even though the demographics appear to be going the Democrats' way with a state like Texas, for example, coming more and more into play, if they don't find a way to not be typecast as the elites of American politics, then the risk in the long term is that the growing mainstream gets them. You know, and, and that is, you know, there's, there's nothing sort of mathematical about that yet. At the moment, it's intuitive, but being cast as the elites which Trump does very well, ironically, as a billionaire, it's, it's a difficult thing for Democrats to overcome, and they haven't got those personality types, as you say. They're also a gerontocracy. They're a gerontocracy. You know, Nancy Pelosi in her 80s, uh, Biden is into his ninth decade now or about now. Yeah. You know, that you just don't see that person coming through. One that they pitched a lot of hopes around was Beto O'Rourke, the Texan. He had the sort of the, the young Kennedy good looks. He had the ability to sort of reach over collect Hispanic voters with him. He's, you know, he's got that Texan sort of rootsy thing. He's not from the coastal cities. And yet he set off to defeat Ted Cruz in the Texas Senate race and was beaten. Mm. So he ran a very good race. He nearly got there, but he didn't get there. So he has no political office to speak of. You've got the current transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg. A lot of people like and admire him, but in terms of elected office, he was a small town mayor. So it just does stagger me that anyway these are for other conversations i guess we're going to watch it all go through yeah and, and it, it's it's something that we'll probably be continuing to lament if we were discussing it in five or ten years time quite possibly maybe new figures might arise by then if we go to uh... well you'd hope you'd hope you'd hope so otherwise we're moving to we're going past the octogenarians what do you call people in their 90s i, I, I should know nonagenarians <laughs> the non land of nonagenarians uh, and with that, a very useful PVO and, uh, and myself, uh, thanks for listening. <laughs> and we'll see you back in Oz next time. Talk soon. Stay safe. Bye-bye.
You have been listening to The Professor and the Hack, a Network 10 podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.